Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. What does it mean to be an environmentalist? Got an image in your mind of what an environmentalist looks like? Think that person skews older and white? Well, Karina Newsom says, think again. She's an African-American graduate student studying biology with a focus on avian conservation. She has founded several programs to encourage people of color, especially young people of color, to explore the outdoors. Coming up, Karina joins us to talk about her work. Now, Karina writes on her blog that birds changed her life. Maybe you love birds, too. When you're outside, have you noticed fewer of them in your backyard? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. You know, in previous uh, Where We Live shows, when we talk about birds, um, our listeners like to tweet us pictures of birds they see uh, near uh, their homes or apartments. And you can do that, too, uh, even in the winter. Again, our uh, Twitter handle is at Where We Live. Now, later, we'll be joined. uh, Actually, we're going to be talking about two recent studies that focus on bird populations in North America. Later, we'll be joined by Dr. Brooke Bateman, a senior scientist at the National Audubon Society, about how bird species will be impacted as the planet warms. First, we wanted to focus on a startling report. Startling, that is, if you don't follow birds as closely as my next guest. In studio with me is Dr. Chris Elphick, professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at UConn, who's currently leading the five-year-long project, the Kinetic Bird Atlas. Uh, Chris, welcome to the show. It's nice to be here. Uh, So uh, coming up, we're going to be talking about the Connecticut Bird Atlas, uh, but I wanted to start off uh, talking about uh, the journal Science, uh, this uh, study that was published in the fall. People probably saw the headlines that found a 29% drop in the overall population of birds in North America since 1970. So to put it another way, that's 3 billion fewer birds today Uh, in North America uh, than there were 50 years ago. So when you heard that uh, study or read that study, what was your response? Um, Well, I was not terribly surprised about the magnitude of the decline. There's been a lot of um, evidence for a long time that bird populations are declining. Um, I think what was striking about this study is that the team that put it out had pulled together a lot of different data sets. So people had analyzed uh, some of these data sets individually and um, but but nobody had already pulled it all together and put it in one place, used state-of-the-art methods to uh, analyze the data, and really quantified just how big the entire problem was. Mm-hmm. And so I think that even for those of us who follow this stuff and had a sense of what was going on anyway, um, it was uh, it was um, really valuable to be able to see just what the whole picture looked like. You mentioned uh, this data. So can you break that down for us? Where did the data come from? And what was so groundbreaking about, again, this compilation? Sure. So there there were lots of different uh, data sets included. So one of the biggest and, um, uh, I I guess, best known, at least in the the bird world, is a a study called the Breeding Bird Survey that's Mm -hmm. conducted by the U.S. Geological Survey. It's been going since 1966. um, And it involves surveying the numbers of birds along these uh, uh, these uh, road routes that are uh, distributed across all of North America. And so 
volunteer birders go out and they drive these routes, stopping every half mile and getting out of the car and counting birds for a fixed amount of time um, and then doing that every single year over and over over the decades. And, and so those data have, have shown declines in a number of species. So that, that's one of big data sets. Second one is probably the one that is best known to most people, which is the Christmas bird count, mm-hmm. which has been organized by Audubon for over 100 years, um, in which, again, many volunteer birders go out and count birds in a, in a designated area, um, this time in the middle of winter, um, and um, uh, quantify all of the birds that are there. Mm-hmm. And then there were several other more specialized um, surveys that are focused on particular groups of birds that were yeah. brought together. I wanted to talk, uh, coming up, just a, a couple of minutes about how uh, scientists looked at weather radar uh, in this, uh, again, this really interesting study, again, that was released in the fall. But when you mention bird counts, does that mean that when volunteers go out, they're counting individual birds? Are they looking at specific species of birds? Can you describe that for us? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's both things. Okay. I mean, you're trying to find um, as many species species as possible often, especially on the Christmas mm-hmm. bird count. For a lot of birders, it's kind of a, a semi-competitive thing who can see the most species. Ah, okay. um, and who usually wins that? <laughs> um, well, the person who stays out the longest probably <laughs> and gets the coldest. <laughs> um, but um, in addition to that, you're trying to, trying to quantify the number of birds, which is, okay. which is hard. I mean, mm-hmm. birds fly around, they move, it's, they hide in bushes. It's you know, counting seems like it should be easy, but um, but it, it can be pretty pretty difficult. I'd be worried that I'd be counting the same bird over and over again. <laughs> that's definitely a risk, and you know that's where experience helps. But it's you know it's something you can't be, um, uh, you can't always be sure. Uh, you know, I mentioned again uh, this uh, using weather radar to document uh, flocks of migrating birds. Can you describe that uh, to people of, of how uh, scientists looked at uh, this, uh, these maps, uh, this radar over the years, uh, again, to, uh, to help uh, get this data for this study that was released? Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's pretty amazing. And, and, and I should say it's not just something that scientists can do. You can, you can see this. Interesting. Um, you, you know, if you go on the NAXRAD uh, website, which is where the weather radar is, and it's during, a mi- during the migration in the spring or the fall, and you watch it during the period when it gets dark at night, because a lot of birds migrate at night, right around dusk you can see um, it turn green like it would if there was a rainstorm coming through. And that's birds taking up and getting up into the atmosphere. Um, and uh, and if there's uh, if the weather conditions are right, if the winds are in the right direction, and a lot of birds are migrating, you can vi- you can visually see it on this radar. And so what the scientists um, who were involved in the study did is they took all of that data and they uh, uh, quantified the mass of birds mm-hmm. that were in the atmosphere um, at, at at the time, and they did that over over year over multiple years, and um, included that as a measure of how much. Uh, how many birds there are. And so over the years, they saw uh, the, the migrations, the, the, the masses were changing, getting smaller? Yeah, yeah. J- just as the other data sets show, the overall, the, the mass of birds in the air has declined over time. Now, you can't identify individual species. You can't count them one by one, but you can get a, an index of how much or how many birds there are uh, moving through through the air. And you mentioned the NAXRAD, uh, NAXRAD website. Tell me what that is. Well, N- NAXRAD is a, is a kind of radar. Okay. Um, and so if you go on um, you know, uh, weather.gov, which is the uh, government's weather mm-hmm. site, or any, any weather site, they're all using the same data. So you can just, just see it. So check it out come, this come, coming yeah, spring in, in the, the spring. evening. Yeah, okay. yeah.
Uh, my guest uh, in studio with me is Dr. Chris Elphick, Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at UConn. Uh, as we talk about this uh, study that was uh, published in the journal Science uh, in late fall, finding that there are three billion fewer birds in North America over the last half century. Um, you've probably seen the headlines. We want to hear from you about what your response is, especially if you're a birder, if you're someone that enjoys uh, the birds living uh, near where you live. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, so when we think about uh, the factors that are causing uh, these bird populations in North America to decline, can you walk us through uh, the biggest factors, uh, Chris? Sure. Well, the, the number one is habitat loss. You know, that I mean, there are a number of things that are playing into the decline, but habitat loss is by far the most widespread thing that affects the greatest number of species. Um, other things that matter, uh, you know, um, things that we do that, that, that cause birds to die, um, so the use of uh, pesticides, um, um, in some cases over-harvest, although that's not really a problem uh, for the most part in North America because we have very well-regulated um, hunting activities. In fact, some of, the, uh, some of the big success stories in conservation are hunted species because many of the species that are doing well are species that hunters have been you know, funding conservation for um, in the science study, the, the the one group that is doing particularly well are, are waterfowl, ducks, and geese, and that's partly because um, hunters have funded an awful lot of uh, wetland restoration and wetland creation work, and that has helped recover many of those populations. And even though uh, um, you know the overall story is quite bleak, I think that one of the things people should take home is that that there are successes, and 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 this particular pattern with with the waterfowl mm -hmm. shows that if we do protect habitat and if we do do restoration work, we can you know bring bring populations back and have some successes. And when we talk about habitat loss, uh, when we look at how our landscape has changed over the last half century, uh, are we talking about the fact of, that you have a development uh, encroaching and taking away these important tracts of land? Yeah, de development for sure. I mean, most habitat loss starts out with the conversion of land for agriculture. Um, that's not so much the case in Connecticut anymore. We now have kind of moved through that, and now we're losing agriculture. And often the agricultural land is is the good bird habitat. Um, and so, yeah, development is, is, is a big part of the problem. Um, again, we're going to be coming up, we're going to be talking uh, with uh, the National Audubon Society about how climate change uh, can further exacerbate uh, what scientists know now, and that is that uh, there are fewer bird species uh, that are uh, doing well in North America. Uh, I was curious, because we're in Connecticut, Chris, if you could talk about some of the bird species maybe that you study uh, that are of particular concern because of habitat loss. Mm-hmm. Well, unfortunately, there's a, there's a lot of species that are declining in Connecticut or that are in trouble. Um, the one that I, I know the most about is a bird called the salt marsh sparrow, which occurs in coastal marshes uh, along the east coast of, of North America. Um, and these marshes are changing. They're changing very dramatically, um, largely due to um, them getting wetter and wetter, which we think is due to sea level rise. Um, and that is affecting all of the birds that live in them, but the salt marsh sparrow is probably the most vulnerable. Um, over the last 20 or so years, they have declined by about 75%, so we have only a quarter of the salt marsh sparrows that we had in the 1990s. Um, and we predict that um, they're going to be extinct um, by the middle of this century. Mm. 
Um, so that's that, that's that's one example. It's a you know particularly bleak one, um, but but there are many other species that have declined. A lot of species associated with grassland habitats have declined. Like the eastern meadowlark is almost entirely gone from the state. Um, grasshopper sparrow is another species that is now just found in two or three locations. Um, species associated with um, what an ecologist would call an early successional habitat, so kind of the scrubby, uh, bushy areas that grow um, uh, as forest starts to regenerate. Um, the species that are found in those habitats have generally declined, things like field sparrow and prairie warbler um, and, uh, and a number mm-hmm. of other species. Uh, the robin is a Connecticut state bird. It's something that we think of that is quite abundant, but uh, given uh, this, uh, again, the study in journal uh, science, are robins and blue jays the ones that we see most often also in a, in a bad place? Well, a, a, a number of common species are declining, and I think that's one thing that was perhaps surprising for a lot of people about this study um, is that many, many common species, even species that are are introduced here that some people think of as as a problem, like um, house sparrows um, and starlings, which you can see in in the cities in in big flocks, even those species have declined dramatically. Um, And, you know, some people have argued that, well, if, if a lot of the decline is the common species, that's not such a big deal because they're common. You know, the, the, the flip side is that if even the common species are declining, you know, if even you know, species like house sparrow and starlings, which are some of the, you know, we think of as the winners in the world, mm-hmm. in the bird world, if those species are declining, then that speaks to something much more problematic going on in the environment. It's not just a few birds. Um, th- there's, there's some big changes happening. Um, and we really need to know what that is because it probably has repercussions for, for us. Uh, before I take a call, could you quickly talk about the repercussions for us, How, why these bird species are vital to ecosystems? Well, birds play, play lots of roles. I mean, they, I, I think they're valuable to us in, in a number of ways. I mean, they're, they're valuable in an aesthetic sense. I mean, people just like nature. They like to see birds, so that, that's good. But they also have often economic value as well. You know the uh, the uh, ecotourism uh, industry, the uh, the extent to which people spend money when they go bird watching, the amount of money people spend on bird seed. Where you know you add it all up, it's billions of dollars in the economy. Mm-hmm. So there's real value there. And then birds also play um, a service role, if you like, in the environment. They they eat insects. They are um, there are a number of studies now that show that um, the predation on uh, insect pests in agricultural systems can be quite valuable to farmers. Um, and, uh, and and there are a number of other things of that type. So, uh, Laura's calling from New Haven. Uh, Laura, you're on the show. Hi. Um, my comment is that we need to be very careful about putting artificial turf on our soil and about spraying pesticides because we're wrecking bird habitats. And I live in New Haven, where, which I'm told is one of the two most important bird migration stops in the Northeast. Thank you. Thank you, Laura, for bringing up that, that point. And I believe uh, Chris also mentioned uh, pesticide use earlier. Yeah, I mean, pesticide use is certainly a concern. Um, you know, I think in, in, in some ways things have gotten a lot better. There are certainly some very bad pesticides that we don't use anymore. Um, but there are also a lot of new pesticides that we don't really understand the effects of very well. And so there's been a lot of discussion about the effects of pesticides on insects, which of course are important food for birds. Um, and, you know, there's conflicting evidence. I don't, and, and a big part of the problem is we just don't understand 
the effects that these chemicals have, and yet we often use them and frequently use them without very careful control until we really understand those effects. My guest is Chris Elphick, a professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at UConn, currently leading the five-year-long project, the Connecticut Bird Atlas. We're going to talk about that coming up. We also want to talk about how our warming planet will further impact bird species in North America. Have you noticed fewer birds where you live? Join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Are you a self-professed bird lover? What birds are you seeing near your home or apartment? You can tweet us at where we live. You can also join us, 888-720-9677. Again, you can also find us on Facebook. We're talking about birds today after a study in the journal Science found nearly three billion birds in North America have disappeared in the last half century. One of the biggest drivers of that decline is habitat loss. My guest in studio is Dr. Chris Elphick, professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at UConn. Now, if our planet continues to warm, how will that further impact bird species in North America? Joining us to help answer that question uh, by phone, Dr. Brooke Bateman, senior scientist at the National Audubon Society. Brooke leads the climate science team focusing on climate and the conservation of birds and their habitats. Uh, Brooke, welcome to our show. Hi, thanks for having me today. So the National Audubon Society published uh, a report uh, uh, titled Survival by Degrees. Uh, what was the major takeaway from that report, Brooke? Thanks. Our, so our report looked at birds in North America and how climate change could potentially affect them in the future. And what we found was that two-thirds of, of birds that we looked at in North America are going to be at risk from climate change, potentially losing large amounts of their range, potential um, extinction. And so two-thirds, or 389 out of the 604 species that we looked at, are vulnerable. Uh, that's a really uh, troubling statistic. Uh, when you look at these three warming scenarios, is two-thirds of American birds, uh, North American birds at risk um, if the planet warms uh, up to three degrees Celsius? Yeah, so we looked at the three different scenarios so that we could get uh, an idea of how different climate change scenarios could play out with birds. And what we found is that the three-degree scenario, if we continue to uh, go on the track that we're going with climate change and not take action, then two-thirds of the birds were going to, are going to be at risk. However, when we look at the one-and-a-half-degree scenario, if we are able to curb our emissions and reduce the amount of greenhouse gases and really take action on climate change, then 75% of those birds will be better off. They'll have less range loss, um, and, and all across the board, our species will, will be doing better. Uh, Brooke, when, and when our listeners and others hear about uh, habitat loss being the driving factor, maybe walk us through that a little bit more. So when birds uh, experience habitat loss, how do they try to adapt? Yeah, so habitat loss is, is a huge issue, and, and the landscape across North America, across the world, is very different from the landscape that they would have seen prior to, to humans. And so there's habitat loss, there's fragmentation, where what used to be a grassland is now considered an agricultural field, and it's not the appropriate habitat for them. So when we look into the past, the study that came out that says that we've lost 3 billion birds, habitat loss and the other things that Chris already mentioned are, are a huge part of that. But climate change is a, is a threat multiplier, and so when we look into the future, this is going to cause a lot of problems. So birds are already facing a lot of issues, 
And then with climate change, they're going to have to shift to these new locations, but it's not necessarily going to be the appropriate habitat because of all this habitat loss. They might have to move into a new area because the climate conditions are ideal, but again, it's, it's, they're going to face the, these changes. It might be a city or an agricultural field, and it's not the appropriate location for them. Mm-hmm. Again, I mentioned Chris Elphick is in studio with me. Uh, when we hear that birds are, are mo- shifting further north, are there particular bird species that you're se- that we're seeing in Connecticut that we haven't seen before because of, of them trying to adapt? Oh, I mean, for sure. I mean, and this is not something that's just starting right now. I mean, you know, you go back 100 years, there were no cardinals in Connecticut. There were no tufted titmice. There were no um, uh, red-bellied woodpeckers. There were no Carolina wrens. I saw or heard all of those species just this morning. Um, So, um, you know, that is something that's been going on for a number of years. More recently, you know, we're seeing shifts of species into the state. Just in the 20 years that I've lived in Connecticut, you know, when I arrived here, a bird like the black vulture was a rare bird in Connecticut. You could occasionally see them along the coast. Mm. I routinely see 20 or 30 circling over Willimantic as I drive through today. You see them all over the state. Um, and that is, again, it's, it's a species that was right at the northern edge of its um, geographic range, um, just south of Connecticut, and it has just gradually shifted north as things have warmed. Mm. And at the same time, you know, those are increases, but we're also seeing species disappear from the state. And some of the declines locally are probably due to climate change. Uh, Canada warbler is one that we've found that used to be quite common in forests across much of the state, and it's just not there except in a few locations now. We've been really, with the Atlas Project, we've been really quite surprised at just how few places Canada warblers seem to remain. And again, that's a bird that was at the southern edge of its range. And as its range shifts north, as the planet warms, it's just moving out of uh, out of the region. Mm. Uh, Brooke Bateman, uh, going back to the National Audubon uh, Society report, I thought it was interesting that on uh, the website, and we can tweet out uh, a link to that website, you can put in, listeners can put in their zip code, and it shows uh, these three warming scenarios again, um, what birds currently um, are at risk and what will happen if they become more vulnerable. Can you walk us through some of, of the birds uh, in Connecticut? I, I think there's a couple of the American goldfinch, uh, uh, the American black duck, the eastern whippoorwill. Uh, again, these are all uh, bird species that as the planet warms, they become increasingly vulnerable? Yeah, so the, the website, you can go, like you said, and put your zip code in, and you can see which birds are going to be affected in your zip code. You can also look per state. So, for example, at the three degrees warming scenario in Connecticut, we have 71 species that are vulnerable to climate change. And then you can toggle to the one and a half degree scenario where you see that it's more like 30 species if we can do something. And so these are species like dark-eyed junco, um, salt marsh mar- sparrow, uh, and oven birds, species that um, some are common across the state, others are restricted to the coast. But you can play around and see what your favorite species and how they're going to be affected. And I think that birds are a really, really interesting lens to look at climate change because climate change is this, this big abstract um, concept of three degrees warming globally. What does that mean locally? And so we can take birds and sort of distill it at a local level and we can look at the individual species and how the different scenarios play out. Again, uh, with me is Dr. Brooke Bateman, senior scientist at the National Audubon Society, as we talk about um, how climate change will further impact uh, the loss of, of bird species in North America. In studio with me, Chris Elphick, professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at UConn. You can join us, too, 888-720-9677. Uh, Chip is calling from Waterbury. Chip, go ahead. 
yes, I I uh, had moved into the Waterbury area about about twenty years ago now, and when I when I drove around uh, the the city, I noticed a lot of a lot of pigeons in and in uh, parking lots like like stop and shop seagulls, but then it then it uh, crows took over for a couple of years, and then the crows disappeared for a little while, and there was nothing for for quite a while, and then about three years later the crows came back, and then nothing again. The, the pigeons never did come back, and and then again this year the crows came back, and I was wondering what. What what kind of cycle is that? That's kind of really strange to me. Well, thank you for your question. I'll have uh, Chris Alfick uh, from UConn uh, help answer that question. I, I think crows are really fascinating, uh, but uh, tell us more about why they might see that fluctuation. Well, so, so I think there's a couple of things up there. I mean, one is that all bird populations, all animal populations fluctuate up and down. And if you're just in one local place, you're probably just going to see that, and it's probably just the normal fluctuation of things. You, know, you regularly hear people say, oh, the, there used to be a mockingbird in my yard and it's not there anymore. Well, that, that might just be that that mockingbird died out, another one didn't move in yet, maybe in three years' time it'll, there'll be a mockingbird there again. But at the same time, you know, there are, I mean, I, I guess I should say that that's, that's one of the reasons we need these long-term data sets. And what is so valuable about the breeding bird survey and some of these other studies is that they really give us the, that long-term perspective. In terms of the crows specifically, you know, they're... There was a period a few years ago when West Nile virus was spreading through the state and then across the rest of the continent, and crows were one of the species that suffered very badly as a result of that. Now, I don't know the exact timing of CHIPS observations, but but there was a period where where crow populations really plummeted, um, and now they have come back to some extent. And um, but um, but but there are these things that come and come and go. You mentioned the importance of uh, these surveys. I mentioned that you are leading this five-year-long project, the Connecticut Bird Atlas. Uh, citizen science plays a vital role in these studies that we have mentioned. Talk more about the efforts on the ground here, Chris. Yeah. So the the there Connecticut Bird Atlas is a project that is designed to map the distribution and abundance of birds across the state. Um, there was an atlas project done in the 1980s, and so we're kind of you know, replicating that, but we're also doing you know, more than was done at that time. Um, and we have taken the entire state, divided it up into just over 600 uh, blocks that encompass the entire state, and we have volunteer birders who are going out and you know, counting the birds, uh, uh, putting together species lists, trying to identify all the species that they see in each block, and during the breeding season, collecting data on breeding behaviors that help us know whether the birds are really breeding there or if they just happen to be passing through. And are you looking for volunteers, or you said it's nearing the end? We're about halfway through okay. the project, so we're always happy for, for volunteers. Um, we have about 700 people who have signed up to work on the project already, so we, we have a lot of people, but there's always more work to do. Um, we and, and in addition to, um, you know, Many of our volunteers are very serious birders who will go out, know all the birds, can um, identify them all by sound. But I, I want to stress that you know, even if there's a robin nesting in your yard, or you've got a, you know, a, a great horned owl that you hear hooting at night, you know, those records are, are very valuable because you might live in a place that is um, somewhere where there isn't a birder, or there isn't someone who who knows all the bird songs, and especially for some of the harder to detect species like owls. I mean, it's very hard to get good information on species like owls because um, because they're not active during the day. 
but lots of people hear them at night because they just happen to live there and, and it's relatively easy to recognize their calls. So those kinds of records are particularly valuable from just about anybody. And so if someone hears, uh, uh, say, a barn owl or a great horned owl uh, where they live and they wanted to share that information, where could they go, Chris? So we have a website. It's ctbirdatlas.org. Um, and if you go there, there's information on how to submit data in a variety of different ways. Uh, Julius is calling from Middletown. Julius, go ahead. Yes. Um, I'm concerned about um, the predation of, of birds by domestic cats whose owners let them uh, run free. And uh, I think this is a, an, added, an added problem for stressed populations. If we have 30 or 40 million cats that are roaming um, and they're, they're killing 100 birds or, or more a year, that, that comes out to hundreds of millions of birds that are perishing needlessly. Well, thank you, Julius, for bringing up that point. We've talked about that on the show in the past. Uh, Chris, um, how do you respond to that? Well, um, Julius is right. I mean, cats do kill um, billions of birds, actually. The estimates suggest that the the numbers are huge, and not just birds, also small mammals. And in some parts of the country, um, uh, some species of reptiles as well. So that's certainly true. And, uh, you know, if I, I love cats. Uh, <laughs> I think cats are great. But, keep them indoors. But keep them indoors, <laughs> and they'll be safer. You know, you know, cats that roam tend to be very vulnerable to coyotes and mm-hmm. those great horned owls we were just talking about. And, and so your cat will be safer that way as well. Uh, before I go back to Dr. Brooke Bateman, uh, Kenny is calling from Litchfield. Kenny, go ahead. I, I wonder about, I'm thinking about the window of observation that we have, uh, for better or worse. And the beginning of our observation window starts with uh, traditional agriculture or maybe the 40-acre farm where it's a closed-loop nutrient cycle versus industrial agriculture. And So what role does that play in, in the success or failure of bird species? And ultimately, I'm trying to think of what sorts of plants and what sorts of practices I can implement on my land to, to facilitate the health of birds. Kenny, excellent questions. Uh, Chris? So um, the industrialization of agriculture has certainly played a, a, a very large role in the loss of, of habitat. Um, in Connecticut, I think things are pretty good. I mean, we, you know, we're shifting away from that in, in anything. If, if anything, agriculture is a, is a threatened uh, industry and, uh, and agricultural habitats are threatened habitats. And even though... Um, when you convert to agriculture, you lose certain types of habitats. There are many birds that do use farmland. Farmland is increasingly valuable for many species that don't have native native habitats. We mentioned grasslands earlier. You know, not all grassland birds can survive in in farmland, but some of them can. And if we didn't have the farmland, you know, if, if it was all tract housing, then those birds would have nowhere to go. So, um, I, I'm someone who studied you know birds in in agricultural systems, and I, I actually think they can play a really important role in in the conservation equation. But if they get too industrialized, if you pull out all of the hedgerows around the edges of the fields, if you use excessive amounts of, uh, of chemicals, then, then you start to have problems. Mm-hmm. In terms of what you can plant, I'm, I'm not a, an expert on that, but uh, I, I know Audubon has a lot of resources on their website, so that might be a good place to start. I would love to mention uh, pollinator pathways, uh, something that we've talked about in, in the show previously. This is an effort as we think about uh, how um, 
our uh, landscape is fragmented, uh, chopped up uh, because of development. Um, there are efforts uh, to create uh, areas uh, near where you live uh, that uh, uh, pollinators, birds, uh, bees, and others uh, can benefit. And if you want more information, you can go to pollinator-pathway.org. Uh, lots of towns in Connecticut are signing up, uh, again, to help uh, wildlife uh, in those areas. I wanted to go back to Dr. Brooke Bateman, senior scientist at the National Audit Bond Society. Uh, Brooke, and I was wondering if you could give um, some suggestions uh, to our listeners, because as we hear about our warming planet, some people feel helpless. What can they do, uh, specifically as we think about habitat loss as uh, bird species in North America are, um, could face uh, extinction if we continue to see our planet warming up to that three degrees. What are some, um, some final words from you? Thanks. I, I think it's important that, that people do find some hope and things that they can do individually. Uh, and leading off your, your pollinator pathways, I think that one of the things that we can do is to look at native plants as sort of a co-benefit for both the, the planet and also for um, cities. And so uh, native plants can cut down costs for cities because they um, don't need to be watered as much or mowed as much. And they can also act as carbon sinks, so they can um, mitigate rain, they can um, hold carbon. And so that's one of the things that we can fit into the, the topic of natural solutions. And so you can advocate for natural solutions. So Audubon, Connecticut is already working on natural solutions, such as restoring wetlands. And so if you restore wetlands and salt marshes, this can help buffer ecosystems from sea level rise, but it can also um, mitigate climate change by also pulling some of those, that carbon out of the atmosphere. So that's something that you can sort of advocate on a large scale. But you can also reduce your energy at home. You can ask your elected officials to support energy-saving policies like the BEST Act. Um, you can look to your work. You can um, adjust the thermostat in your work. You can ask for more plant-based foods in your schools or compost in your schools. Um, so there's lots of different things that you can do individually. I, I will say that Audubon has this fantastic um, guide to climate action on their website where you can look at the different options that are available to you. But I think one of the most important things that we need to do is to call on our elected leaders to really be climate and conservation champions because we need action to happen um, at a broad scale. We really need those um, across-the-board policies that will help us get through this um, uh, climate crisis. Again, uh, Brooke Bateman, a senior scientist at the National Audubon Society. Uh, thank you for joining us today here on Where We Live. Thank you for having me. Uh, in studio is with me uh, Dr. Chris Elphick, professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at UConn, as we continue uh, to talk about uh, birds and people who love them and why they're important. Other, uh, other ways uh, to foster curiosity about the natural world, especially in young people. Uh, my next guest uh, will be talking about that. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. What does it mean to be an environmentalist? Do you have an image in your mind of what an environmentalist looks like? Think that person skews older and white? Well, Karina Newsom says, think again. Uh, Karina is joining us from Skype. Uh, she's a graduate student at Georgia Southern University. She studies avian conservation. She also advocates for young people of color to consider careers in wildlife sciences. Uh, Karina, welcome to our show. 
Hi, Lucy. Thank you so much for having me. So I understand that you call yourself the hood naturalist. Tell us why. Yeah, well, at first it was kind of a joke, just a catchy uh, name to put on Twitter. But then the reason why I chose that name is because I am from Philadelphia in the, as you might call, inner city in a really urban area. So I'm from the hood. Um, But I also take the time to look very closely at the natural world around me as much as I can find. Um, And so so that way I'm a a naturalist. And so everywhere I've gone and everywhere I've lived, I've tried to look closely and and encourage the people around me to look closely. So that's kind of where that name (laughs) came from. Uh, We know there's not a lot of green space uh, in places like uh, inner city Philadelphia. So so as a child, what were you drawn to? Um, As a child, uh, my mother would actually occasionally take us out to the outskirts, into the suburbs to walk around and get some connection with green space. Um, But while I was at home, I wasn't really very much focused on the wildlife in my backyard because there was not very much. But what I did have were um, like magazines from National Geographic and encyclopedias. So I was always very curious and interested in wildlife, but I had never really touched it with my own hands or seen it with my own eyes before. Mm. Uh, you've written that birds changed your life. How did they do that? Yeah, well, I took when I took ornithology in college um, under the direction of Dr. Jason Corder, who is basically the person who introduced me to birds, um, birds are very interesting because they exist in this um, almost like a Um, in opposition with themselves. So there are these things that are very fragile and having worked with birds in animal care, like I've I've actually been able to like touch and feel just how fragile they are. You know, they've got hollow bones, Um, even your largest birds sometimes only weigh a few pounds. Um, But they make these massive physical feats through migration, through their their breeding behaviors. Um, They are very unique um, and very impressive in the kinds of physical feats which they accomplish. So they kind of um, exist as fragile beings, but do more physically than most living things have ever done. Uh, we, if you're a bird lover, everyone has their favorite bird. So what was the, the bird that, that changed you or that you felt that you were drawn to? Yeah, the very first bird that I learned and that I was utterly shocked by its existence was the blue jay, because I'd heard that word before, but I had never seen one. And I certainly didn't know any native birds at the time. And I thought a blue jay was essentially what is actually an an eastern bluebird. That's kind of the bird I was picturing. And then when I saw a blue jay in real life, this massive bird covered in all different shades of blue and white and black, I was blown away. And at that point, I started looking closely at the natural world around me. So you were a young African-American woman. You mentioned some mentors. Uh, They were the ones that that helped encourage you into wildlife sciences? Yeah. So um, when I was in high school, I was planning on being a veterinarian because that's pretty much the only wildlife career I could think of or animal career. And then one day, a black woman zookeeper from the Philadelphia Zoo, my, my neighborhood zoo, reached out to me and invited me to come intern at the zoo and look behind the scenes of the job that she did. And at that point, an entirely new world of, of wildlife careers opened up for me and it felt like the, the entire world was, was my oyster, you know. And so I was introduced to a variety of different careers, zookeeping being one, wildlife biology being another. And so from that point on, um, I realized the potential for, for my career path. How did you see um, other uh, young people responding to you when they saw you uh, doing presentations at the zoo uh, and why it's important for them to see you, but also to understand that you have a natural curiosity about the natural world and they can too? Yeah, well, I think they had the same reaction that I did when I saw a black woman being a zookeeper. It was like, wow, I've never seen 
this combination before, you know, someone from the city, someone who's uh, from my ethnic background doing this job. And at first there, you know, I would often get comments like confused, like, why are you messing with them animals? They're like, you know, how did you get into this? Like, this is so strange. Like they would go to the zoo to see animals, but they didn't expect necessarily to see someone like them working with the animals. And so it was first sometimes met with confusion, but then often followed by, okay, how can my kid you know, following that same path? Or how can I, um, you know, get closer to possibly doing a career like that? And that's exactly what I did. And so I was able to offer my own, you know, path that I'd taken as a result of people introducing me to the world of wildlife conservation and offer that to other people as well. I'm speaking with Karina Newsom via Skype. She's a graduate student at Georgia Southern University studying avian conservation. Uh, She calls herself the hood naturalist. She advocates for young people of color to consider careers in wildlife sciences. So, Karina, uh, tell us about some of the programs you've helped develop uh, to get uh, children, again, who um, aren't connected uh, to the outdoors, uh, excited and thinking about maybe careers uh, down the line. Yeah, well, while I was at the Nashville Zoo, um, the job that I had right before going to graduate school, I was able to start a program called Pathway to Animal Care Careers, um, which still exists there. So if you're in Nashville, check it out. But it allows students who are in high school in the greater Nashville area in Title I schools, which is for students who are more than 70% are on free or reduced lunch. Um, It allows them to come to the zoo for a day and shadow me or another zookeeper and participate in the activities which zookeepers do to care for their animals, as well as get a tour of the zoo to see all the different kinds of jobs that go into wildlife conservation. So not just animal care, but animal medicine, um, breeding species, animal nutrition, all kinds of things. Um, And so that would be a full day of activities for the purpose of exposure. Um, Another program that I was able to start was one in conjunction with my alma mater, the school I graduated from for undergrad and a local high school where students had the opportunity to participate in animal care at the school. There is an on-grounds animal program there, um, as well as get exposure to a variety of wildlife careers throughout the school year and during a summer camp during the summer, which I was able to run, um, which exposed them to things like wildlife rehabilitation, um, wildlife law enforcement, um, zoo zookeeping, again, a vari- all the variety of different kinds of careers that exist within zoo conservation. And so they were able to both see what those careers look like, as well as speak with people in those careers to get an idea of what the possibilities are. And then at the end, I had um, the great opportunity to kind of see, you know, what kind of careers they were thinking of um, after having a variety of different kinds of exposure and help guide them in the directions for next steps to take. Mm. I thought it was interesting. I saw a video where you were doing a presentation inside uh, a an African-American church. And so you're engaging communities of color uh, where they live, um, not just about, uh, you know, interesting animals that they may see, but how that they can um, be engaged when we think about climate solutions and how uh, to keep, uh, to get everybody involved with this. Yeah, people have to think about their entire lives when you think about climate solutions. And in particular, when it comes to the, the places where I've lived and where I've come from, like black church is the hub of almost like black culture in many places. And so I've been able to, because I grew up in that environment, I'm very familiar with it. And I also had never actually even been to like a zoo until I was 18 because it was $20 to get in. And so that was a huge barrier. You know, one trip to the zoo would cost my mom like $100 to take the whole household. And so it really wasn't an option. And so being able to bring those animals to my church and to to the community in which of which I'm a part, where many of those those kids 
can't necessarily afford to go to the zoo, um, certainly not very often, was a, a way for me to to break down a, a barrier, an economic barrier that might hinder them from getting the exposure that I have been so lucky to have. Karina, in studio with me is Chris Elphick, a professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at UConn. Chris, I was wondering if you could respond uh, to what uh, Karina's been telling us, especially about the programs that she's using to engage uh, young people, especially young people of color. Anything that's similar in Connecticut, where the people are on the ground, encouraging young people, even before they get to college, to have that curiosity? Yeah, so I, I don't know of specific programs um, like the one that's, that Karina has developed. And I mean, I don't live in a city myself, so I'm, I'm not so uh, engaged in those things. But um, uh, the department that I'm in at UConn um, and uh, the uh, uh, Natural History Museum, which is also based at UConn, has for a number of years run these one-off events uh, called BioBlitzes, which we've done um, you know, typically every other year for a number of years. And we specifically did those in urban parks. You know, the, the idea of, of a BioBlitz is you pick a place and you try to find as many species as possible in 24 hours. So it's kind of a game, but it's also a way to, you know, show people that there's lots, you know, what biodiversity there is in, in, in a small space. And, you know, we did them in urban parks specifically to send the message that there's biodiversity everywhere. You know, every one of these things that we did, we found over a thousand species, often 1,500 species. This is all, not just birds. This is plants, insects, everything. But in 24 hours, a bunch of scientists can come in and find 1,500 species in, in a park in the middle of Hartford or in the middle of Danbury or, or wherever. And there was always an educational component. There were um, kids' camps associated with that where kids could come and engage in things. So there are things like that happening. But in terms of sustained, ongoing, you know, happening all the time, I don't know, but that's probably just that I'm not the right person to mm. ask. So we'll, hope, we'll hopefully uh, follow up with that uh, here in Connecticut. But, uh, Karina, we just have a couple of minutes left. I'm wondering if you um, have some suggestions for maybe educators who are listening right now in Connecticut of ways to help uh, young people, again, uh, more time spent outside uh, and to help uh, them uh, appreciate uh, the biodiversity around us, but also maybe a future career. Yeah, definitely. And I will say that one of the great models that I've seen for this is actually Houston Audubon. Um, I visited them recently, and they are kind of right in the middle middle of Houston, which is a very big, sprawling city, but that has patches of of biodiverse, you know, habitats right in the city. And they have, similar to what Chris was saying, they have used and invited the city residents to participate in bird surveys that happen every single month. And so they're compiling such incredible data about bird populations right in people's backyards. And that data is collected by the people who live there. And I think that is just one of the best ways to to both educate and inspire curiosity. Um, so any sort of, whether it's birds or different different tacks of, of, of creatures, if there are you know organizations like Audubon societies um, that had the opportunity to reach out to communities, I would, I would always encourage people to look in the uh, and reach out to people who live in urban environments who tend to be, on average, more detached or disconnected from nature than maybe people who live in more rural um, environments. But um, if you are an educator, if you are in a, in a position to to pass on information, especially to children, um, anytime you have the opportunity to incorporate touching the natural world in your curriculum and in the way that you're educating, that is 
leaps and bounds one of the most um, effective ways to encourage people to look around them when they leave school, when they leave that educational experience by facilitating that connection in person. And so anytime people have the opportunity opportunity to do that, I always encourage them to, um, because being an educator is such a powerful and wonderful position to have, um, especially for, for young people, um, because not only are you uh, inspiring connection, you're giving them exposure, which leads to questions, which, you know, leads to saying, you know, what is it that you do? What kind of people work here? And especially if you have connections with people who work with wildlife or in conservation, you can also make those connections. Um, but for 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 the average person, um, if you are already someone who looks around, whether you're a birder or you are an insector, I don't know if that's a, a name <laughs> that people who look for bugs have call themselves. But if you're someone who goes outside and you are especially passionate about a particular group of animals, um, birders are one of the most notable ones, invite someone to come with you. So when I go birding, if I'm here in Georgia or if I'm back home in Philadelphia, no matter where I am, I always ask out when I go birding, I say, hey, do any of you, whether it's my family or my friends, come with me. And they might look at birding as kind of like a nerd activity, which is fine, but they know me and they trust me. And so me kind of using and capitalizing on the personal relationship that I have with people to draw them outdoors is something that I intend to use and that I encourage others to use as a mechanism for connecting yeah. people with the outdoors. Well, thank you. Uh, so the final words, get a nature buddy. Yes. <laughs> I think that's a yes, good indeed. suggestion. Well, uh, Karina Newsom again joined us via Skype, graduate student at Georgia Southern University studying avian conservation. It was a pleasure to speak with you, Karina. Likewise. Thank you so much, Lucy. Also with me in studio is Chris Elfig, professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at UConn. Chris, I've been talking with uh, my producer, Carmen Baskoff. We want to go out on a, a bird count with uh, you and your colleagues. So you'll be hearing from us. Anytime. <laughs> Uh, today's show produced by uh, Robin Doyne Aiken, and our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Learn more about the show. Just download Where We Live on your favorite podcast app. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Have a great weekend.